and welcome to the Anarchist Book Club with Danny Evans and me, Jim Yeoman. In this episode, we discuss David Rodiger's Seizing Freedom, published by Verso in 2014, which gives a brilliant account of the radical upheavals brought about by the US Civil War and the self-emancipation of slaves in the 1860s. I hope you enjoy our thoughts on this work and how Rodiger's insights on revolutionary eras can be applied to other events, such as the Paris Commune, the Spanish Civil War, and the contemporary insurrections around the world. Today we're going to be talking about David Rodiger's Seizing Freedom. Uh, and this was a word that you suggested for the podcast, Danny. Tell us why it is. You thought this would be an interesting book to, to read together? Yeah, so it's, it's a book that um, has been on my mind a lot since I first read it. And um, I, I suppose it's like ret- returned to my mind recently in the in the wake of like the um, the insurrections that have taken place in the United States and the reverberations around the world. It's a book about the history of the United States and racism within the history of the United States. But it's also a book about moments of revolutionary rupture and the possibilities that emerge out of struggle. So it seems like a, a particularly um, opposite time to be returning to that, to this book. And the book itself, in any case, has will always, um, I think, stay with me because it, I found it really inspirational and exciting to read when I was um, turning my PhD thesis into a book. It really made me help me think about um, the Spanish Revolution, particularly the, this idea that he talks about of how the moment of emancipation, which inaugurates or, or comes within a period of revolutionary time, what he considers to be, or talks about as revolutionary time, brings together these improbable or, or previously seemingly improbable alliances between different actors struggling for their own emancipation and how the bringing to an end of that period of revolutionary time caused um, a fracturing of, and, of those alliances. And that really made, you know, made sense to me thinking about the Spanish case as well. And it was like a really important sort of framing when I returned to, to thinking about that period. So I'll always be um, grateful for this book. And um, yeah, I, I like in this conversation as well to, to, th- to think about some of the parallels with, with Spain and, and with other revolutionary moments that, that come across or that like occurred to us both as we, as we read it. That sort of central idea of the latter stages of the Civil War and the, the, the remainder of the 1860s in the US as being this this revolutionary moment comes up, you know, throughout the book. It's a, it's a, it's a returning motif and a very strong one, I think. And there's a quote towards the end that comes from Wendell Phillips, advocate of Native American rights during this time and, and other kind of progressive causes. When he was talking about one of these coalescences, one of these kind of coming together of different causes, different movements, he, this particular one he's talking about is the abolition of slavery and women's rights and women's suffrage. And he says that this was a, a shared sense of entering a, a revolutionary time. And he says, these are no times for ordinary politics. These are formative hours. And I think that's a really, that to me echoed with, you know, things that we've talked about in the past on this podcast about the, the Paris Commune. For example, I think that comes through quite a lot in Christian Ross's work that, you know, this is a, a moment when the, the impossible becomes realistic the impossible becomes achievable it does quite well in in outlining how unlikely it was that slavery would be abolished even in 1860 how impossible this moment would seem to someone that that wasn't living in this revolutionary era as you rightly say to me it's like the core thing that comes out of this book and, and everything else kind of spins out from this kind of central framing of the 1860s. I should probably just acknowledge that um, I did do a podcast with a friend and comrade of mine like several years ago when I first uh, read this book and we talked about revolutionary time and so I was just thinking about with us recording this podcast earlier today where I thought oh, well it must um, it's quite possible that what I say will be in, will in some way echo um, what was said in that conversation so I should acknowledge Gloria Dawson for for that conversation because um it's quite possible that like how i'm thinking and remembering the book now is as a result of like that that conversation but yeah so, so the idea of like of, of revolutionary time changing the parameters of the possible i think is is really interesting way of looking at history and it's obviously a very different way of looking at history from 
the sort of classical understanding of progress that most sort of orthodox Marxists as well as like um, liberals uh, believed in. So there's a way of like thinking about emancipation of the slaves as a, as one moment of culmination that proves human progress, right? So it was like slavery in the past, that was very bad, but humans were able to overcome that. And the fact that slaves were emancipated is proof of this um, progressive line of history. But this thinking about revolutionary time completely explodes that kind of like linear understanding. There's a really like telling um, epigraph Du Bois writing in 35. So he's talking about the collapse of the period known as radical reconstruction that followed the Emancipation Proclamation that was in, intended to try and um, ensure rights for black people and voting rights for black men in the aftermath of, of the Civil War through the um, federal occupation of, of the South. So Du Bois says that the resulting emotional and intellectual rebound of the nation so that rebound being the collapse of Reconstruction made it nearly inconceivable in 1876 that 10 years earlier, most men had believed in human equality. So what we're seeing here is not progress. What we're seeing is a moment of possibility, a coalescence of struggles that makes the impossible possible. And then that becomes like barely even a memory within like just a few years, right? It's, it's, it's impossible to believe that in the past, people have believed in human equality. So um, this idea that our um, parameters and horizons of understanding are constantly expanding as a result of technological advances, science and what have you, fails to make sense of these kind of revolutionary ruptures and the, and the, um, the, the way in which what we think of as possible is turned upside down, only to be like uh, violently bludgeoned back into the realm of the impossible um, as as time marches on i think that it's interesting isn't it because progress like the way that progress is sold to us in something like the communist manifesto is like a consolation right because you know we can look back on the um the struggles of plebeians of peasants of slave revolts and what have you and seeing how they've been defeated or they've been um, they've only been or they've been recuperated into class society we can say oh well never mind right because progress is on our side and capitalism is going to be overcome in, in, as a historic inevitability by something better. So all of those past struggles were doomed to fail, but we are fated to succeed ultimately. So thinking about revolutionary time obviously doesn't allow for that, right? Because you know, progress doesn't hold any promises for us because we know that progress is about the, the, the constriction of possibility as much as, as anything else. But revolutionary time also holds out some kind of consolation for us when we look back at history because um, it shows that regardless of how bleak a situation appears to us at any given time, the impossible emancipation that human beings require in order to save themselves and the planet you know, could emerge at any moment as a, as a distinct historical possibility. And we have to be watchful for those moments of revolutionary time. We have to act... Um, as, it, as if we appreciate that that revolutionary time remains a constant historical possibility. There's several things that are, I like to sort of get into with what you just said there. I totally agree on this idea of revolutionary time as, as being disrupting slightly the this kind of linear notion of time. I once uh, gave a paper, I never really wrote it up, at a, at a conference about time that was organised by... Um, Matthew Carey, actually a friend of ours, in which I made a slightly ill thought out, but nevertheless, I was kind of convinced by this argument that the, the anarchists in Spain, particularly on the turn of the century, had almost a dual sense of time, one of which was this, you know, progress, linear time, everything is kind of moving upwards towards greater progress and emancipation. In other words, this cyclical, you know, um, bursts of revolutionary activity followed by cycles of repression and I think you're right that that trying to understand historical actors thinking in that way which I think Rodiger does a really good job of and that I attempted to do a, a job of without patronizing or without kind of saying that this is a pre-modern way of thinking about time in terms of cycles and 
actually can speak much more historical truth than the idea that things are getting better. I mean, just a very trite kind of example, I suppose, is I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that in the 1860s, black men in the South could not only vote, but voted in black representatives for a time. The legislatures, you know, many of them in the South, you know, were on a very radical platform, that there was an opportunity for something to change, that it wasn't just slavery ended, then it was Jim Crow, then we had civil rights, now we're, now we're better. It's not, you know, that isn't the story that's, that's being given here. There, there, is a, there is a moment when almost all bets are off, or in Spanish they'd use the term the, the tabla rasa, the kind of everything kind of up in the air, and repression, you know, almost, uh, you know, comes in as the other side of that cycle, the repressive time, you know, forces its way back in. And they don't go back to where they were before, but they also don't follow this this revolutionary time because of this inverse kind of time frame as well. So that, that was one idea. The other one, I think, again, I think you're right that acknowledging this and, and trying to think about history in this way in terms of revolutionary time and cycles and thinking about history as though we believe that these moments created possibilities and that we now also need to to think about it and reflect on it. I, I agree. I think that's very important. It does raise the question, and perhaps it's you know too early in the podcast now or too big a question. But I think I think in the moment that Rodig is talking about, it is apparent, you know, that, that that this is happening, that this revolutionary time is is underway. But I guess, in, you know, when thinking about it in other contexts, the question I would have is, is who decides that this is now the moment to, in Rodiger's terms, seize freedom? I guess the kind of warning bells go in my head when I think of someone, you know, like Lenin, you know, like going against the, the, that kind of very orthodox Marxist view that, that you outlined about progress being the sort of crumb of comfort at the end of a, of a long grind through terrible things you know Lenin saying actually no like I've identified that this is the revolutionary moment so now we have to go uh, and act and obviously that's a very kind of limited analysis of what happened there but it doesn't just kind of having this faith I guess in 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 seizing the revolutionary moment as a moment when all bets are off doesn't remove that worry yeah I think that's that's a fair point but I think there's um there's a couple of things to say about it, really. We could think we could think about Spain, and we could like stay on the, the case of of America. Rodiger refers a few times to um, John Brown, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, which was you know intended to be the first act of a war on slavery. And somebody who I really would love to know more about, and um, perhaps we could do a future podcast on a book about John Brown because it's just so so fascinating that this um, this. This person, you know, it, it, as he as he put it, tr- attempted to take the war into Africa, which is an extremely suggestive phrase that I want to come back on later on as well. There's a really excellent uh, series of podcasts about uh, John Brown's life done by uh, The Dollop, which is a, an American history podcast that's done by two comedians in, in quite a good way. So I can recommend that. Oh, right. Ace. Yeah, nice one. I'll definitely check that out. But um, it's clear that like John Brown's also acting in a way to try and usher in a period of revolutionary time that's um, not ripe, you know, and he pays a heavy, heavy price for that. But it's also the case that his actions, you know, have an impact. They have a resonance. You know, they don't just stop there. I mean, it's, it's maybe like think in, in different ways. You wonder really about like that this whole problem of like voluntarism of like trying to hurry history up and in a sense sort of you know in, impatiently acting what that means. So if you if you read like for example Chris Elam's book Anarchism and the City, which anyone interested in anarchism should should do, which is about um, Spanish anarchists. And, and when he talks about the the uprisings of the anarchists during the period of the Republic, he's quite scathing about th- these actions, right? Which you know, alienated a lot of a lot of people, including a lot of anarchists. Right? They didn't uh, appreciate this idea that you set a date for an uprising and then you just you try it on. You like um, attack police, raise the red and black flag, and then you know you declare a revolution. And that went totally against their understanding of how a revolution might come about, how a revolution would be a product of mass activity and so forth. It's a completely understandable criticism. 
as well as the fact that these um, uprisings tended to bring with them a whole wave of um, repression that then like really obstructed the anarchist movements in terms of its day-to-day organizational activities and educational propagandistic activities and so forth in some cases for like for, for a long time afterwards but on the other hand we are presented with this history where people have acted and um, people felt they couldn't wait anymore they couldn't wait for the correct moment they just had to try and do something and i think we have to try and empathize with that we have to try and understand where those people were coming from, why they'd been pushed to the end of their tether and why they thought it was worth risking everything to rise up. And also, we have to take seriously the possibility that those premature actions, or what appeared to us as premature actions, um, made subsequent actions, which appear to us as like genuinely revolutionary mass upheavals, made them more plausible, You know, put them on the agenda in a way that they haven't been. I mean, if you take something like the 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 uprising in the mining district of Figols in um, Upper Dobrogat in Catalonia. We're miles away from Rodrigo at this point, so apologies if any, <laughs> anyone listening was looking for an, an in-depth page-by-page uh, discussion of the book. But yes, if we look at this um, uh, uprising of miners in 1932, in uh, the first like major major uprising from the left in the, in the Spanish Second Republic, where people like desperately poor people who'd been kept in um, conditions, appalling um, working conditions in which, you know, everything was owned by the company store, in the words of the song. Company store, incidentally, owned by the Counter for Golds, who was a scouser, who's from Liverpool. Yeah, they're everywhere, don't they? <laughs> yeah, they really do. You can't get away from them. So, so yes, their bid to get away from um, scousers was to declare libertarian communism in um, for Golds. And this, uh, although this was like a desperate, you know, it's a desperate rising, it's fairly easily crushed by the Republican authorities. Scores of people are then deported, jailed and what have you in the aftermath. But what they did was present the possibility of fighting for libertarian communism as a historical possibility, an option that was then, that you know, really transformed the dominant anarchist understanding of the time. Um, as, as you said, you know, there, was, there was a strong belief in progress even among um, Spanish anarchists. And we think about this idea as very strongly associated with something like second international Marxism. Lots of anarchists shared this idea of anarchism being the end result of, of, a, of a long period of progress. You know, the, the uprising of Fagols, which refused to wait that, you know, refused to wait that long, transformed that conception. And who knows whether it was in some way like influential in terms of what would happen in, in Spain four years later with the revolution. I mean, it's, it's frankly hard to argue that it didn't have any like ongoing resonances in that respect. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you have like the, the importance of somebody like John Brown emphasised in this book, or the importance of Figols emphasised in my book. <laughs> but the real story, you know, the real story that makes revolutionary time what it is, it makes the po- impossible seem possible is the mass activity of hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, the famous um, general strike of the slaves, as um, Du Bois called it, and which is really taken up as the sort of central organising framework with which to think about this period in, in Rodiger's book. So, and, and you know, again, you mentioned Lenin, but really what makes, you know, revolutionary time exist in Russia, you know, for a good four-year period at least, is the, the mass activity of, um, of millions of people, or at least hundreds of thousands of people refusing to fight, sending delegations to Soviets and things like that. You know, it's these individual actions and voluntarism is, in a sense, only really given meaning by mass activity. But the exact relationship between them is tricky, isn't it? It's tricky to unpick, really. It goes back to, to, to the point where Rodiger actually starts the book. And it's something I've encountered in kind of wider reading. I don't pretend to be a uh, an expert in the U.S. in or in this particularly in this period of history, but I'm aware that there is this historiographical debate about the question of agency. The Rodiger gives us this story of what's happened to that idea of Du Bois's the the general strike of the slaves, and and, and that's not so, not a term that I'd come across before. To my ignorance, you know, revealed there, but. But he paints a picture of, you know, this being the accepted story that the slaves freed themselves, that this was a self-emancipatory moment 
that brought the North and Lincoln and Republicans along with them, but it was the motion was there. And Rodiger very clearly says that this is left academia, you know, to a story of Lincoln, a story of benevolent North bestowing emancipation of the South, very reminiscent of recent arguments that you can see given by people about Britain's role in the slave trade and you know, these ludicrous depictions of Britain abolishing the slave trade as something as being worth celebrating, despite the fact that Britain, you know, established it. This idea of motion, I think I think you're right. And, and you know, perhaps my reference to Lenin there was, was misfounded because, as you say, it comes after the popular movement. If anything, if we wanted to, well, if we go back to our conversation last time, someone like Emma Goldman would definitely see Lenin as belonging actually not to the the jubilee, not to the revolutionary time, but actually to the anti-jubilee, to the to the forces seeking to control that moment, to reset the time in a way that benefits them. So I, I agree, and and that that theme of of self-emancipation and the possibilities and coalitions and alliances that erupted from it is to me really instructive again on on how I think about revolutionary moments and to not let our knowledge of what happens to these moments to the repression of the 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 falling apart of coalitions to not let that override the moments of hope and possibility and of genuine you know concrete change there's something that Rodiger does emphasize throughout again is that we need to remember that things were achieved in this moment and not everything was was crushed slavery he makes a very clear point that Slavery didn't come back as as slavery, and it's not correct to view what came afterwards as slavery. It was oppressive, it was terrible, but it wasn't slavery. And that and that and he 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 instructs the reader not to lose sight of that. And I think again, that's something that can be taken to other studies of revolution and not to just frame everything as a a tragedy. That's yeah, that's an interesting point. Although he does frame it as a tragedy, isn't he? And perhaps that's something um we could like come back to thinking about the, the tragic elements in um, of revolutionary time more generally. But there was a couple of things that you said that made me that I thought I'd come back on. And um, perhaps I'll try and bring them together. So like part of the, the problem that we have in terms of like trying to salvage what like you say, like what what's what's positive about moments and, and movements that are later crushed, it's like an act of imagination, isn't it? It's like we have to in some way leap from the the conditioning of um our times just accept as historical fact the putting onto the stage of history of something that seemed impossible part of the violence that's that crushes these moments of revolutionary time part of that that work is actually is a work of violence against memory and against our ability to recover and recapture and even explain those moments after they've been defeated so there's a really good bit towards the end of the book where he talks about um, a commemorative stamp that's put out in 1909 to um, commemorate uh, emancipation. And it presents Lincoln as this towering figure freeing these like supplicant slaves. And he says how it's not only that this is like a kind of establishment rendering of what happened. It's like this, this wouldn't have been a recognizable depiction of, of the truth of reality at the time. Because it was acknowledged, you know, it was acknowledged among um, activists in labour, women's rights activists, you know, it's, it's everywhere acknowledged that it is the the slaves themselves who are freeing themselves, who are refusing to work on the plantations, who are um, heading to north to present themselves to the Union armies, volunteering and so forth in the thousands. So that is creating the momentum of emancipation, that is enacting emancipation itself. It's interesting how he talks then about how the historiography has lost sight of that fact as well, right? So history and memory is obviously, um, you know, they're not the same thing. But in order for for history to do that work of excavating revolutionary time, I think our own capacity to remember needs to be jolted occasionally. And um, for a long time, we didn't, you know, there weren't those there weren't sufficient jolts, right, after, after say, the end of the 70s or what have you. There's a long period, particularly, like, in regard, as regards Anglophone scholarship, where an understanding of, the re- of revolutionary impulses goes out of fashion in history writing. And you can see that in relation to 
Russia, as well as evidently, you know, from um, Rodiger's opening chapter in relation to, to the history of America, and definitely you can see it in relation to the history of Spain as well. The, the revolutionary aspect of the Civil War is increasingly dismissed, marginalized, or even, you know, or just treated very condescendingly. And, you know, we sometimes require jolts from our own, like, surroundings, our own um, circumstances to be able to, to make that imaginative leap that enables us to recover that historical moment. And Rodiger actually talks about how 2011 helped him conceptualize this book, Seizing Freedom, the, the Arab Spring, the way that that spread, right? The way that, that, that societies that had, had, are traditionally depicted in the West as being effectively immobile and fated to be um, despotic for all time. Um, you know, obviously, which is a violent act of historical erasure in and of itself, right? And whitewashing of the role of the West in, in, the, in that region. But that was completely blown apart by um, the events of the, of the Arab Spring and how quickly revolts spread from Tunisia, elsewhere, and then into, into Europe as well, and into the States through, through Occupy Wall Street. It's that, you know, jolt that enabled Rodiger to go back and, th- and rethink um, revolutionary time in this kind of way, in a historical way. You know, it's to be hoped that the same thing will happen with regards to the historiography of other, of other revolutionary periods. I mean, there's a really good historiographical essay about the Russian Revolution written by Steve Smith on, for the centenary. And um, he talks about how if we're really going to get back to understand, you know, if we're going to increase our understanding of the Russian Revolution, and not just in a kind of mechanistic way where we incorporate new, new like findings from the archives. But if we like really want to, if we if we really want to increase our historical understanding of it, we can't completely let go of our ability to empathise with the revolutionary impulse. Or we can't, or at the very least, we've got to make the imaginative effort to understand where people are coming from. And this is something that really, you know, will never cease to infuriate me about the way that um, historical revolutionary events are written about from the perspective of a moderate liberal today denouncing, you know, a, um, extremism at demonstrations or whatever, as if, you know, these were, you know, not that I think those people are correct in the present day context, but, you know, the, the complacent way in which, like, this very obviously present understanding of, of the world is just projected back as if it could help, you know, could feasibly make sense of, of societies that are undergoing revolutionary rupture. There's a level of humility required, I think, to, um, to set aside what you consider to be common sense and possible in your own time and try and understand what is um, possible in, in periods of revolutionary rupture. And I think that's what uh, Rodiger does so sensitively, so evocatively. And, you know, I really can't, I personally, I can't recommend this book enough. I, even though it's like quite short, quite well written, I mean, in the sense of being easy to read. It's, there was still loads of, it still took me quite a long time to read it, even the second time around, because I just kept pausing and think, and, you know, like being sent off on like these um, tangents in my head. It's like, because the, um, so much of, of what he says in it is, is really suggestive. And, you know, as I'm sure the listeners already appreciate, makes us both think of Russia, Spain, Paris, Commune, wherever else, you know. The way that it makes us think about those examples, you know, one thing that, that I think really came through and comes through in the framing of self-emancipation as the the general strike of the slaves and and this very clear effort that Rodiger makes to write this moment into labor struggle not in 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 perhaps in a traditional or orthodox kind of marxist sense in terms of you know they weren't kind of operating within like trade unions or you know these kind of things but it belongs in the history of 19th century revolutionary labor history, which it is not a big part of in, in the historiography. And it made me think, like, maybe it really should be, and not only a big part of, but when, when you're talking about that jolt, that upending of, of what is possible, you know, you would need to do more work on this. <laughs> I, I would need to, to, to back this up. But, you know, this, this happens in 18... 18- 60s to 1864 and, and, and onwards, as Rodiger makes very clear, something that is completely off grid, not even within the wildest dreams of radical abolitionists a, a couple of years before, the idea that all of slavery 
would be constitutionally banned in the United States. And that this just made everyone who was looking for change in the world think, ah, right, well, you know, what else is on the table? And and Rodiger concentrates on women's rights and women's suffrage and on the US labor movement. And there's a really excellent section, I think, of linking in slave self-emancipation with the the really strong vibrant campaign for the eight hour day that sort of given that sort of common sense you know that there are slaves in america we might not agree with it but you know it's common sense that it exists no this kind of cataclysmic kind of event just throws everything up and it made me think you know marx has mentioned a few times not necessarily as 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 an, an analysis way but the fact that he was alive and present and writing at that time and this must have impacted you know, in, in Europe, uh, like across the world, to think, wow, all right, so like this is off the table. And it's at that point that you see the growth of socialist anarchist movements. It's only a few years later that you get the Paris Commune. Christian Ross's book starts with the, the episode of Louise Michel encountering a black colonial soldier on the barricades of the Paris Commune. You know, that this moment needs to be much more clearly written into that history because it's not just echoing it's it 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 must be directly influencing people's imaginations yeah absolutely and the the book really illustrates nicely in in a couple of different um anecdotes this um two-way interchange between um the civil war and the struggle for um emancipation with the the labor movement and and more specifically with marxism there's a couple of different uh, anecdotes that set that off but i was pleased to see in the latest edition of um, Insurgent Notes, like an online journal, in the latest edition, it has excerpts from two interviews with Karl Marx. One is from the Chicago Tribune, 1879, right? So this is obviously a long time after the the Civil War. When um, Marx is being asked about the political movements um, in favour of the working class aim for, the interviewer says, so is the, what you're aiming for is the supremacy of labor. Now, supremacy of labor, we could imagine to be like synonymous with dictatorship of the proletariat, but, um, but the interviewer poses this to Marx, supremacy of labor, and Marx says, rejoins that it is the emancipation of labor, right? So still like over a decade later, his understanding of um, freedom his understanding of the goal of working class revolution has been shaped forever. The first evidence of that the rules for the uh, first international, but it's forever, right? This is much later on, end of the 1870s. He's not going back to the dictatorship of the, the proletariat. He's sticking with this understanding of freedom, which has been given meaning by the struggle um, of slaves. And in a way, it's a real pity that Marx, he didn't write a book or something about this, right? <laughs> because, um, as you say, you know, it's it's something that should be a part, of, not just of the, the labor movement history, but the labor movement's understanding of itself. And the, the labor movement's relationship to race has been vexed, right, to say the least, right, from the, from the get-go. But there is this opportunity opened up, particularly by, um, by Jubilee, by the self-emancipation of the slaves, and um, which in some ways, you know, finds echoes in, in events like the Paris Commune, as, as, we, as you say, that could have provided a foundation for a non-racial global working class resisting this pressure to become racialized, to accept, um, you know, a, a racialized status and, an, and, and a nationalized status as well, which obviously went, you know, went hand in hand. Um, but there are some other as well. There are some other anecdotes that um, that struck me as particularly interesting in terms of this um, two-way travel of Marxism. Because it, yes, Marx himself is being influenced by this. Marxists are being influenced by this. But also, he talks about how um, German American forces. So there were there were several like, battalions that were made up of German post eighteen forty eight exiles who'd gone to um, the Americas after the defeat of the 1848 revolutions. He says on page 111, while Irish regiments often received lectures in Irish nationalism in army camps in the United States, some German-American soldiers regularly heard lectures on Marxism. So, the, so in some ways, this is a two-way educative process that's going on. One of the like most 
like lasting, I suppose. Manifestations of that is the song Solidarity Forever, which right at the end, he provides a genealogy of so Solidarity Forever. I suppose like most people think as a, a wobbly song, I might be wrong, but that's you know, how, how I thought of it. That was um, the new lyrics provided to the tune of John Brown's Body, which had been um, you know, a, a marching war song of the Union Army. But that in, a, in and of itself had been nicked or like adapted from a spiritual and African-inspired uh, ring shout called Say Brother. So, you know, there's a real uh, interesting... Think about the amount of times that, say, Solidarity Forever has been sung or mentioned or evoked and how few times it will have been... Like, its roots will have been acknowledged in the in the struggle for the self-emancipation of slaves. And yet how fruitful that connection could be, could still be. Absolutely. I think that's a really brilliant sort of encapsulation of that mutual interchange, mutual overflow in ideas and practices. And and I think that, you know, another kind of thing that comes out of that as well, the Rodriguez is kind of stressing throughout is if you're trying to frame it in 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 ways that we might recognize that there are there are discussions and debates on the, the kind of contemporary left, you know, it's the a kind of an intersectional analysis or an analysis which takes in regards race and class and gender is not it's a natural result of these moments of jubilee or revolution it's a it's a really obvious thing that that seems to happen that inspires one another that these things cross you know these boundaries that have been constructed and and in this case unfortunately return very strongly and that it's really not an argument to have to say no, we need to concentrate just on this one particular thing, you know, and then once we've sorted that out, you know, maybe we'll sort out, you know, the other things. The image that he's giving, as I say, is this kind of natural intersectionality of this moment. And I think that that, again, I think that kind of rings true to the, well, there's a really nice quote by Douglas, by Frederick Douglas. This is towards the end of the book when he's talking about the the unraveling of these dynamics but Douglas says you know all good causes are mutually helpful and I think that's a really nice way of kind of framing one of the key messages here that Rodriguez given. that idea of like intersectionality not just being um something that you know like a trendy word or whatever that informs modern day politics but also like a way of like informing an understanding of history as well I thought that was like one of the most striking things when I first read the book and all good causes being mutually helpful is also like driven home at a couple of different moments. Partly there's the, the Karl Marx uh, quote that um, labour in the white skin will never be free, wherein the black it is branded. But that's echoed by the, the Daily Evening Voice, this radical newspaper that says the labouring classes will never be elevated without the elevation of women. It, that's probably not a deliberate evocation of Marx's statement about the black skin and the white skin, but it's obviously, you know, it rhymes with it almost. Yes, as you say, it's almost natural. And I think this, like, chimes with our discussion of Caliban and the Witch, that these modern um, structures of exploitation, you know, this, this system, this social condition that um, we call capitalism, rests on racialization. it rests on gendered division of labour, uh, it rests on the nation-state. All of these things were co-constitutive of capitalism with wage labor, you know, as, as indeed was slavery. And so in moments when those, those, the foundations of capitalism are shaken, really regardless of what the dominant um, theory, be it like radical Republican, be it like socialist, anarchist, Marxist, whatever, whatever, it, whatever those theories have to say about the oppression of women or racism or what have you, regardless of that, in these moments of revolutionary time, when the structures of society are being shaken, when they're being overturned, then that involves an overturning of all of those categories. And you could see that, you know, just as clearly in Paris, in, in Russia, in Spain, as you see it here in, in um, the moments of Jubilee as well. Where that leads, I, I found it a very hard read, the, the last chapter which is that reassertion of those boundaries that you say, you know, we're existing before the Jubilee and, and return in a, in, a, in a changed manner, but nevertheless return a violently, you know, reimposed on a, 
you know, I wonder if we we need to discuss that. You know, we've talked about hope and the possibilities of this moment, but also, you know, it is a it is a key part of the book. Just how quickly those sentiments, such as Marx's, you know, such as the long-standing shared interests of women's rights and abolitionists, they, you know, they fall apart. They very quickly start to kind of identify their own specific problems as being the problems that need addressing. The question of why, you know, is it an opportunity lost? Is it they they got what they could out of that scenario? Is it the the self-interest of some actors? I think Rodiger makes a point, you know, that big structural changes such as these aren't driven solely by individuals or political parties, for example, but there are key actors that, that operated basically with their own interests, uh, you know, above the, the interests of, of the Jubilee. It's harder to see the hope from that that kind of moment, um, what to take from it now in, in kind of how we think about the present or how we think about our history. I mean, we obviously kind of skip over the fact that there's a whole chapter called Falling Apart, which... <laughs> Uh, you know, it's obviously integral to the, the story that Rodig is telling, the fact that revolutionary time wanes, that that involves a splintering of solidarities that have been affected when everything seemed to be on the table and everything seemed possible, and people return to their narrower, more sectional interests. And I think that it's clear, like as you say, that this is at once an objective problem and a subjective problem. And I think that that kind of brings us back, I suppose, to that, you know, how you conceive of history and, and time. If we accept that the objective conditions weren't right for, for women, black people and workers to achieve their understanding of emancipation, this moment in history, then that would radically reshape how we understand th- those questions of impossibility and possibility. So I think we have to accept that, you know, that it is a historical possibility for people to enact a different kind of future from the one that we know happened, right? So, but that then places a lot of emphasis on the subjective elements, which can lead to perhaps like overly harsh conclusions on on the actors. And I think one of the strengths in this um, book is Rodiger's sensitivity in dealing with these questions and his, his way of empathizing with people who are presented with these dilemmas and he uses tragic to think this through. Perhaps doesn't, um, you know, he makes reference to Raymond Williams, but I think it would be, you know, I would be interested in exactly what he understands by tragic, what he means by tragic. Because you can have an understanding of tragedy, I suppose what we're taught in school when we read like um, Hamlet or something like that, that tragedy is um, a story where because of fatal flaws that are inherent to individuals that can't be changed, all you're left with, all you, you're able to do is just act out your fate. You can't do anything to change it. So tragedy is the inevitable, sad ending. And it doesn't seem like Rodiger is pushing that kind of uh, reading. Instead, the tragedy, which if I understand Williams correctly, and it's quite possible that I don't, is more to do with the fact that possibilities are raised by human activity. So humans act on the, um, the world around them. They try to change it for the better. And it's that very, the very fact that they make that into a historical possibility, they make that plausible, that it's falling apart, often to do with like human failings. That's, that's where the tragedy comes from. In a sense, like it's not, if, if something inevitably is doomed to fail, then it's not, it's almost not that tragic that it fails. You're back to that whole question of like progress of March, you know, the tragedy would be if somehow human beings are never able to, um, consummate their destiny as socialists or whatever but that the past past defeats are not tragic because they're um, necessary for progress to march on so i think that in tragedy is an interesting way of thinking about this and it also helps to explain like these very subjective very individual dilemmas that people like frederick Douglass, susan b anthony are faced with as revolutionary time starts to wane so um, Douglas famously opts to stand by the amendment or support the amendment that gives uh, black men voting rights in the South, but which doesn't give suffrage to uh, women. 
and this is seen as a betrayal of the, the women's rights movement. Douglas had been a champion and would continue to be a champion of women's rights until, literally until the day he died, as he, he's at a, a women's rights rally on the day that he died. Likewise, uh, women's activists faced with what they see as um, parting of the ways between abolitionism and women's rights then make very unsavory alliances with racist Southern Democrats in a bid, you know, to, to argue for women's suffrage by arguing for the, the greater capacity of educated white women over the black men who had just been emancipated and given the vote. So this tragedy rebounds in different ways, right? And, and, and perhaps it's deliberate of Rodiger to leave it somewhat nebulous in his understanding of it, because in some ways this tragedy seems to be about objective conditions. In some ways it seems to be about um, the fact that these, po these possibilities that are raised aren't fully realised, and partly it's about the individual dilemmas that people are faced with. And because you know either way they turn is imperfect and, and seemingly leads to defeat, you know, that's... You know, I suppose what you'd call a tragic dilemma. Again, like there are resonances here with what happened in Spain, with what happened in Russia. Spain, you know, the, the case, as I mentioned, it, it was particularly thinking about these, uh, the way alliances come together and then fall apart. By re in reading Season Freedom, that was so influential to me when I was writing my own book, because it seemed to me that the revolutionary time brought about in, in Spain at the beginning of the Civil War also created opportunities for the seemingly impossible to be realized and one of the ways that that was enacted was through the effect it had on women and the shaking up of, of gender roles in a country that until the eve of the revolution basically it was rare to see women on the streets without a, a chaperone and then you know within days it's common to see uh, women with weapons on barricades commandeering buildings and things like this and yet, when revolutionary time wanes, you, ha you have on the one hand, you know, objective assaults on this um, level of equality from the, the counter-revolution, right? Like the Republican counter-revolution targets women's equal participation in the revolution very early on. It's also experienced as a subjective tragedy. There's a very moving part of um, the book Pioneras y uh, Revolucionarias, which is a work of oral history by um, Eulalia Vega, where she interviews, I think it's Concha Perez, who had fought on the front line, a young anarchist from Barcelona, who said that uh, what hurt most about being sent uh, away from the front line, being pressured to leave the, the anarchist militias, was that um, it had been her own anarchist colleagues who she thought were committed to emancipation for all, people like uh, Duruti Ortiz, who had, you know, in, encouraged her to, to leave the front. You know, I think that, that sort of brings home the, the way in which that, that tragedy is reenacted in, in circumstances that are at once very different and at once, you know, comparable as well. It's really interesting for me to hear you talk about this book as an influence on yours, because, you know, I, I found those parallels to be apparent as well, that, that you do a similar job to Rodiger here in explaining or, you know, kind of imagining this revolutionary moment and it's unraveling all the while, you know, showing how there's never a sense that it was always going to be that way. It had to go along a certain trajectory. And there are, you know, many historians of the Spanish Civil War and Revolution who will have this analysis that it was always thus and, and it will always have been this way it would have played out in this way and you can see similar things in some of the historiography and I think you know what both you and Rodiger are doing are, are saying well no like first of all we need to remember and not as you said earlier do violence to the memory of the revolutionary moment itself and we need to keep alive those moments from that time but also to, to stress Yes, these groups did do these things that did help to unravel the revolution that they themselves put forward. But that isn't the same thing as saying they were always going to do that and they always will. You know, it's talking about failure, you might say, or tragedy in this way, but retaining that sense that it's not a closing down of, of this forever or in the past either. It's, it, you know, like different things could have happened 
things could have gone another way. Not least because, again, as we've said, the unexpected happened. So who are we as historians to say that what we would then expect to happen couldn't have and that, that everything was always foretold to play out in the way it was because it demonstrably wasn't the case. I think we should be clear about what the, the political implications of these kind of um, histories are as well. You know, the, these kind of complacent histories that want us to believe that everything was always going to play out the way it did. You know, it, it's, it's saying, you know, whether consciously or not, that, that the same applies today, that people who are taking a chance, who are... Who are uh, risking their, well, their, their lives in the case of um, the Black Lives Matter protests in the States are, um, you know, pissing in the wind, essentially, right? That, that the future that is preordained for us and the best thing that we can do is uh, look to the um, correct authorities to manage it in as um, painless way as possible. And obviously, if, if we go along with that kind of logic, then we are doomed as a, as a species, right? And this is what revolutionary history helps us to to understand, I think, and get in perspective as well. Thanks for listening. You can find links to a range of the materials mentioned in this podcast in the notes to the episode. As ever, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Facebook at ABC Danny and Jim and get in touch via our email ABC with Danny and Jim gmail.com. The podcast music is Stealing Orchestra, Gente de Mina Terra. The podcast logo is an adapted version of the Left Book Club logo. And the image in this episode is Winslow Homer's Near Andersonville from 1866, which Rodiger discusses in Seizing Freedom and is available in the public domain. Love and solidarity. Until next time. Yeah.